I invite you all to open your Bibles to the very first book of the Bible called Genesis, and we continue our study of the life of Abraham. And I don't think there's very many college students in Westwood or, or any other college campus for that matter who are studying the life of Abraham. It sounds uh, completely strange. I'm sure if I told you, you know, a year ago, you'd be studying the life of Abraham on a Friday night on campus at UCLA. For some of you, that would have been the weirdest prophecy ever. But I hope that even two weeks in, you found this study to be practical and rewarding. Because according to Galatians 3.16, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the seed of Abraham. You're a son of Abraham and an inheritor or an heir of the promise that was given to him. So his promise is your promise through Jesus. And so the relevance of Abraham is huge. It's big because Abraham matters to Christians because faith is how Abraham was saved and faith is how you're saved. And what we're seeing in his life is that Abraham lived by faith and he struggled and he had trials, and some of them were self-inflicted, and some of them were things that people did to him, but he continued to live a life of faith. And so he's an example to us of what it means to live a life of faith, our father Abraham. And so tonight we find ourselves in a passage that just is so classic Old Testament that it's scary. This is the reason people don't maybe like to read the Old Testament devotionally. It's a passage with some geographical stuff in it. And it may not seem like there's much there, but if you heard chapter 12, and if you missed it, that's cool. I'll summarize in a second, where Abraham got into some trouble in Egypt. It's immediately following that, and you can't really understand chapter 13 without chapter 12. So I'll do my best to summarize it for those of us who were not here last week present company included. So let's start reading in Genesis 13. I know Matt took us, I think, to verse 5 or something like that, but let's start in 13.1 and let's read this brief chapter. It's only 18 verses long. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. That's his nephew, Lot. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of Yahweh. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers." Is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. 
This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of, the, of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against Yahweh. Then Yahweh came to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you will see. I will give it to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to Yahweh. This is the very word of the living God. Who are you? How would you answer that question? Probably depends on the stage of life you're in. Uh, most people identify themselves by their occupation. Or maybe you think of yourself in terms of your gender. Or maybe you think of yourself in terms of your major. Maybe when I ask you the question, who are you? You think about the stage of life you're in. I'm a sophomore, I'm a junior, I'm a senior, whatever. Who are you? When I ask you that question, what comes to your mind is what we usually think of as our identity. And identity is a big thing today on campus and in politics. To question identity is to be put in the, in the stocks publicly, to uh, have any sort of question about who a person considers themselves to be uh, psychologically or who they desire to be emotionally. It's a big question when you ask someone who they are. Normally, people answer it without much thought. I'm an African-American. I'm a basketball player. I'm a scientist. I identify as my vocation. I'm a dad. I'm a son. You're a daughter. Whatever. How do you answer the question, who am I? Christians have been pretty consistent over the centuries on how they think about themselves. Before Christians identify themselves as Americans, or before they identify themselves with a certain political party, before Christians think about themselves as, as maybe part of a region or a dialect or even a nationality, Christians have often borrowed the words of the Apostle Peter in the letter he wrote called First Peter when he said, you are sojourners, that you are, in the King James Bible, pilgrims. There was something about being a sojourner. The NIV, and I think the ESV, uses the word alien, which is a really unhelpful translation because I know what you're thinking when I say alien. Right? Those. So, but an alien in... Old language is, is someone who's not from here. Uh, we would say a refugee or an immigrant. Peter talks about Christians as those who are sojourners. They're not from around here. 
And we don't identify ourselves as citizens of this world. Instead, we are going somewhere else. We're passing through. We're sojourners. We're travelers. We're refugees. And that somewhere else for Christians is heaven. That's where our hearts long to be. That's where we identify with most closely. Having read a chapter in the book of Genesis that has a lot to do with some kind of ancient range war, uh, is I guess what they call this in a cowboy movie. You know, are my flocks going to be next to your flocks? What brand are on them? Where are we going to divide the land? There may seem to not be much lesson for a Christian on campus at UCLA uh, in a chapter like this. But if you start by thinking about your Christian identity, if you start by thinking about who you are, I think you'll find a very resonant chapter here. I think you'll find something in common with your belief and something in common with your faith and the obstacles that you face as a believer in this world. Because what we have in the example of Abraham is an imperfect example of someone who follows God in faith. And that has a lot of appeal to me. I don't follow God perfectly. I don't know about you, but I have faltered in my faith at times. I've doubted, I've struggled, I've sinned. There's been times where I've wondered if my faith is strong or my faith is weak. And when I read the story of Abraham, I'm reminded that true faith can sometimes falter and waver. But then there's other times where faith is so encouraged and so robust and so strong that it stirs me up to have faith in like manner. To sum up the story of Abraham so far is Abraham was a pagan. He was not a Christian. He was not a follower of Yahweh, the the God of Israel. He was from the land of Ur. We learned about him in chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, You could read it. It's, It's a very famous story where God calls Abraham to follow him and makes him a threefold promise. He said, Abraham, follow me and I will make you a great people and I will give you a land and you'll be a blessing to the whole earth. There's kind of a fourth corner of that promise that goes alongside with those three practical things. It's that those who bless you, I will bless and those who curse you, I will curse. So here you have this guy who used to worship the moon, who is now following a God who has revealed himself to Abram. And Abram has in faith, faith in obedience, in a kind of trust in an unseen God with the promise and revelation of God before him decided to follow after this God. And he's made that decision by faith. And so he walks by faith. Later in the Bible, we find out that Abraham didn't know exactly where he was going, but he trusted God and he followed. And not much after that, we get to Genesis chapter 12 or the second half of Genesis chapter 12. Right as soon as Abram receives divine revelation that he is God's promised and chosen person and that he will become a great nation, that from him God will somehow, because of his choice of Abraham, because of his sending Abraham into a land that God has reserved for him, that he will be a blessing to the entire earth, Abraham pooches it badly. He messes up. And he does it in Egypt. And that's what you guys heard about last week from uh, the Chinese Spurgeon, Matt Ng. So Matt helped us understand what happened to Abraham in Egypt is something that happens to all of us. All of us have had times when we have doubted God 
when we've disbelieved him and we've relied on ourself and our self-confidence and our own scheme and our own plan instead of God's way. Instead of obeying him, we thought we better do it a different way. That's exactly what happened to Abraham. Abram was in, I'm switching between the name Abraham, which isn't his name yet, and his original name, Abram, but we'll clear all that up eventually, so don't sweat it. Abram was in Egypt. Egypt was, you know, walk like an Egyptian, King Tut, hieroglyphics, all that cool stuff, sun god. You know, it was a a pretty significant civilization. Abram knew that he was outgunned in such a place as a sojourner, a traveler, a man without a homeland on his way through Egypt, trying to go somewhere else. And he also knew one other thing. He had what most contemporary preachers call a smoking hot wife. And so because Sarai was, what the Bible says, attractive, uh, he felt like she was in trouble. Abram thought he should do something to make sure that somebody doesn't liquidate Abram uh, in order to steal his wife. And so he comes up with a scheme. He decides that he's going to lie. He's going to tell the Egyptians, well, she's actually not my wife. She's my sister. And as you kind of try to unravel his weird incestuous plan, you think, how's this going to help? Well, if you're here last week, I bet Matt explained to you that Abram thought that would give him the upper hand so that some kind of wealthy Egyptian would come and try to negotiate for a bride with the brother and say like, hey, you know, I'd like to marry her. Uh, I will give you mucho camels, uh, which is Spanish for a lot of camels. And... And so I guess Abraham, Abram was thinking, well, then I could negotiate. No, not for all the camels in the world would I, would I give you this bride. And, and maybe he could get through Egypt that way, keep himself intact, keep his sister wife intact. And that was kind of his scheme. This scheme did not take into consideration the fact that the person who wanted Sarai was Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh doesn't offer camels. Pharaoh takes what he wants. And so instead of trusting God's promise that God would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, Abraham got all messed up in this deal. Pharaoh confiscates Sarai. God has to intervene because Abram started this whole thing with a lie and God keeps his promise anyway. When we are faithless, he is faithful. When we're faithless, he's what? Faithful. And God proved that to us in Genesis chapter 12. He gave Pharaoh and his whole household some really bad disease. We don't know what it was, but it was enough for Pharaoh to say, no, thank you. Return to sender. And Moses went on his way. And Abram makes it through the land unscathed. He's got his wife back. His possessions have multiplied in an extraordinary way. And he has been a completely negative example of trusting God. Something happened to Abram in that incident. Perhaps it was in such a public way, failing his Lord. Maybe it was his, his very public and scandalous sin 
in front of all his servants, in front of all his household, that really shook Abram awake. Because now when we get to chapter 13, Abram is a different man. He's still a man of faith, a man who's following God without knowing exactly where he's going. But in this chapter, instead of the negative example of what it means to follow God by faith, we get a very positive example of how faith is, at its very essence, large-hearted. When faith is real, and when faith trusts God's word, it is magnanimous, large-souled, generous, open-hearted. It has no concern about the future. It has no anxiety or care or worry about what is to come, because when you have real, vital faith, you look at tomorrow and you smile, even when tomorrow seems grim. You see, Abraham is now starting to become Abraham. He's becoming this new name that God will give him because Abram is now going to live by faith. And so we still get a negative example in this chapter, and it's the example of his nephew Lot. He becomes a a massive negative example, though he is a righteous man according to the New Testament. You would never know that if you read the story in Genesis, except for a few insights. But Lot is a big compromiser. And this is the first of many compromises that will destroy Lot's life on a practical level. And so in this chapter, we have two examples of faith. One negative from the nephew Lot, who turns into what Abraham was, a schemer, a manipulator, trying to get the best and ensure his outcome. And then we have the example of Abram, a man who is now, after failing in his faith, Trusting God with extraordinary confidence. Let me show it to you in this text. After the Egyptian Egyptian fiasco and Abram being a mix of self-centered reliance and occasional trust in God, we see that Abram leaves Egypt. Verse 1 of chapter 13, he and his wife, and that's pretty miraculous in itself, and all that belonged to him, and his nephew Lot with him. And verse 2 uses a word that's key to this whole chapter and section. It's the word heavy. It's a word in Hebrew that is the word for uh, glory or weight. It's kebev, it's it's kavod, It's, it's this heavy kind of word. And so Abram is... Uh, a man who is, is rich. He's, he's heavy with possessions. He's rich with livestock. And that's amazing because he's a, a traveling man. He's a sojourner. And God has so multiplied his flocks that not only has he gotten rich in livestock, which is how wealth was measured in the ancient world, he's also accumulated vast amounts of both silver and gold. And so this guy with this massive group of servants and attendants and herdsmen that take care of Abram's business matters and his livestock affairs is very, very rich. I don't know if you've ever visited cow country. You went to UCLA and not UC Davis, but if you've been to a place where there are very many cows, have anybody been to a a cowish place like the Central Valley in California, or maybe you're from Texas last 
weekend or last Friday night, I was on the Texas Oklahoma border preaching at a family retreat with my family and a bunch of other families. And there's a lot of what you call livestock over there. And if you tell them it, it smells here, uh, those who know will tell you almost the same thing every time. You know what they'll tell you? Smells like money. That's what they say. It smells like money. And I say, no, it smells like cows, honestly. (laughs) But see, they understand that that cattle is equated with wealth, and so did Abram. And so he has been a recipient of all of this financial prosperity on this journey as God has moved him from the land of his forefathers towards the promised land. And that's what's being sketched out in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4. Those seem like just kind of geographical words for you, but this will become an important part of Israel's story to come. You see, when Moses would read this, he would be leading the people on a very similar geographic journey later in the story. You see, the people of God were enslaved in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And when they left that land in the book of Exodus, they will go on the same journey. And their journey is being foreshadowed here because they also leave Egypt richer than when they came. More in number and more in possessions and livestock. God continues to reassert and reaffirm and show his promise to be true from this generation to that generation. And so there's more happening here than maybe meets the eye. What you encounter in verse 4 is worship. That's what altars are for. And Abram has been faithful to worship God ever since God revealed himself to Abram. And so he makes an altar in the place that he'd worshiped God formerly. And there he calls in the name of Yahweh. Already we see a transformed kind of faith from Abram. He is continuing to worship God in spite of his shortcomings, in spite of his, uh, his trip up in Egypt, Abram returns to God and worships God and God alone. This in and of itself should be instructive for you, college students. I wonder if you've ever messed up before. I wonder if that misstep, that sin, that transgression has provoked you to avoid worship. I hope not. I hope that your first instinct when you mess up, when you sin, is to go to God in worship. I hope when Sunday rolls around and Saturday didn't go right or righteous, that you will come to the house of God. It's something I love about Abram's faith. Abram knows he pooched it badly. Abram knows, I mean, I'm positive Sarai is not loving Abram right now after the whole sister-wife incident. But Abram, because he's a man of faith and because his faith is genuine, he understands that his sin requires him to return to God in worship. He goes back to that altar to make sacrifices. He goes back to call upon the name of Yahweh. No longer dependent on his own scheming and lying and planning and manipulating the outcome of the situation, Abram is now looking to God. This is instructive for the faithful because even when we falter, 
we worship. We respond to our own inadequacies, our own sin, by going to God in confession and worship and calling out to his name. Don't let your sin stop you from repenting. Don't let your sin slow down your pursuit of God in worship. Turn your back on your sin and you will find a father with his arms wide open, ready to receive his wayward son. That's the first lesson we see in Abram's faith, a faith that's been transformed because of the falter. It's a faith that worships, a faith that worships. What else do we see in this chapter? Look at verse 5. Now we, we'll kind of jump back and forth between Abram and Lot here. Lot, in verse 5, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Let me ask you a question. Did Lot ever receive a promise from God in the story so far, if you've been here for two whole weeks? No. Did Lot have a promise of blessing and cursing? Did Lot have a promise of a land? Did Lot have a promise of a people? Did Lot have any of the promises that God gave to Abraham? The answer is no. He did not. Lot did not. It's cute, isn't it? So Lot had lots, and (laughs) we're just full of fun puns tonight. Woo! That one was an accident, too. Lot had lots of herds and stuff. Not as many as Abraham, but he was very, very rich. You see, their possessions had compiled exponentially computational math. And (laughs) this is the nature of it. Livestock makes more livestock. And so through this rich breeding program, Lot has also received great benefit And the generosity of Abraham, which is about to be on big display here, had splashed over into the life of Lot. You see, Lot was a recipient of the blessing of God by way of association. Lot was benefiting from his close relationship with Abram. And that's something that I have a real concern about at GOC. I think some of you experience the blessing of God, not because of an experience or a relationship with God, but because you're around God's people. It's a really ordinary thing that happens all the time. There are people who are part of the church in the sense that they show up there, they hang out with other Christians, but they don't necessarily have any kind of faithful dependence on God in a practical way, but they receive many of the blessings of Christian fellowship, the warmth and love that Christians have for one another, the commitment and generosity we share with each other. And I think that's a good thing. I would just be very careful if that's you, if you're one of the recipients of kind of the the oversplash of Christian fellowship, of the excess, of the extra, uh, of the blessing of God and the people of God that you would make sure that you are included in God's people, that your relationship goes beyond a relationship with the people of God to also be a relationship with God himself. At this point in the story, Lot, I don't think is a righteous man. I think he's a self-serving man. And when he is rendered righteous in the end, I think it's after he has lost a lot. So look at Lot's 
negative example of piggyback blessings. Verse 5, now Lot who went with Abraham. Even the language in the Hebrew is, is emphasizing that this isn't Lot's story. This is Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was a conflict. It's described in verse 7. It's a range war. It's the stuff of a Western film. Uh, your cattle and my cattle are you know, getting mixed up. The herdsmen who are responsible for taking care of cows are getting in fights. They didn't have six shooters back then, but they had long sticks. And so I'm sure they're whacking each other with sticks. And there's all kinds of drama and conflict about the livestock. Uh, Lot's guys are mad at Abram's guys. And that might be solvable were it not for the end of verse 7. The Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So there's an enemy people who has a tendency to swoop down and steal aforementioned livestock. And it's hard to defend yourself against Canaanites and Perizzites when there's a family feud going on. And so here we have a recurrent theme in Genesis. We have brothers, in this case an uncle and a nephew, uh, but family or kin who aren't getting along. What's the first instance of that that we see in the Bible? Cain and Abel, you're right. It's Cain and Abel all over again. But this story goes very differently. Instead of one brother killing another, Abram realizes that this conflict is not good, that unity is God's preference, that unity and love is the more appropriate reaction for family. And so if you've ever been in a family conflict where things aren't right at home, where relatives aren't getting along, you know how unsustainable that is. And so Abram takes the higher ground. And in verse 8, we see the magnanimity of faith. The magnanimity of faith. Let's call it the freedom and magnanimity of faith. And so if the first kind of mark of of Abram's faith was a faith that worships even when it falters. The second would be, look at the freedom and magnanimity of Abram's faith. Freedom and magnanimity. Where does it come from? Well, well let me show you uh, what, what, this, what this means. What is freedom? What is magnanimity? Verse 8, then Abram said to Lot, please. And the language here is so respectful. And remember, this is an older man speaking to a younger man. This is an uncle speaking to a nephew. But his posture here has such humility in it. Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. It's not the whole land before you. And at this point in the story, they're they're up on a high uh, play, a high spot that overlooks the basically the whole of the promised land. God's original geographical borders that he described in chapter 12 that would be the land of promise. They're up on a spot that you can still go to on a crowded tour bus today and look at the entire land of uh, uh, the entire promised land, the, the modern day you know, equivalent therein. So they're up on this precipice and he offers him the very best. Verse nine, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. If to the right, then I'll go to the left. And just as Abram will lift 
up his eyes. In verse 14, Lot first lifts up his eyes. But instead of lifting up his eyes at the command of God, Lot lifts up his eyes to see what pleases his own eyes. This is almost like that moment in the garden where Adam and Eve see and look and grab and taste. This is a moment of covetousness. For Lot, he is going to choose selfishly. He sounds exactly like Abraham in Egypt in chapter 12. This usurper nephew is going to take advantage of this family conflict over the mixture of wealth And instead of wanting to diffuse a quarrel, Proverbs 17, 14 says a wise man diffuses a quarrel. Instead of wanting to diffuse a quarrel, Allah wants to use this for his own advantage. Instead of having an open-hearted generosity like Abram is manifesting, Lot's going to use it a different way. Pause a moment and think about Abram's generosity a little bit more. How could he make such a choice? How could Abram give this opportunity to Lot? Well, I think the freedom that you see, combined with the magnanimity that you see, magnanimous means to be large-souled. It's a great word. It means open-hearted, to be generous, to have a big heart, to be uh, open-souled, to be generous, to be kind, to be about the needs of others. In this moment, Abram, having learned his lesson in Egypt, is now set up on this precipice, and he is ready to say to Lot with full confidence that you take whatever you want. To the right, it's yours. To the left, it's yours. You pick First pick is yours. And in that moment, we see the faith of Abram on display because Abram is so trusting the promise of God, yet to be reaffirmed in the end of the chapter, but the original promise that God gave him. God told Abram that the entire land was his And his generation, his progeny, his offspring, his descendants would own the entire thing. So Abram, in this act of confident faith, with great freedom in God's promise, with great confidence in God's promise, with a a heart that is enlarged towards others, that puts others before self, because he knows that God will meet all his needs. He knows that he cannot miss out on anything God has given him. So to solve this very practical financial problem, he is the guy with the promise. And so he's going to be generous. He's going to be big hearted. He's not going to do what he did in Egypt. He's not going to scheme. He's not going to rely on his own strength, his own ingenuity. He's not going to lie because he doesn't worry about tomorrow. He doesn't have anxiety. He doesn't have fear. It's as if he knows the words of the Lord Jesus, one of his great descendants to come, who will say, do not worry about tomorrow. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give you all things. Look at the sparrow. He doesn't worry about what he's going to eat. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't worry about the, what they're going to take, what they're going to wear, because the heavenly Father takes care of them. And doesn't He care for you more than He cares for sparrows or flowers? 
It's those words that Jesus uses to dispel the anxiety of his disciples. And here we see Abraham before Jesus ever came, aware of the promise of God and faithfully trusting that no matter what Lot decides, God has him taken care of, that the promise will come true. This bold and confident faith ought to be something that's on display in us. When you worry about tomorrow, you fail to trust God's promise. But when you are concerned about the future in a sinful, anxiety-ridden kind of a way, you're forgetting that you're not in charge of tomorrow. But when you trust the providence of God, you can have freedom and you can have generosity, even magnanimity, a a large souledness towards others where you hold what you have with an open hand and an open heart because you know that everything you have is ultimately God's, that everything that is tomorrow is in his hands and not yours. I love Psalm 3115 where The psalmist says, my times are in your hands, O God. Your time, my time is in your hands, O God. And so he gives Lot the first choice. And Lot lifts up his eyes, verse 10, and saw all the valley of the Jordan that is well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden, now he's describing the land. It was like the garden of Yahweh. That's a a name for the garden of Eden. Like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. That's the most fertile farmland in all of Egypt. And so Lot chooses for himself all the valley of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and thus they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Well, Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against Yahweh. Now notice that the narrative doesn't make any comment here. It doesn't say Lot made a bad choice. Abram made a good, generous promise. But the language here is insisting that you notice something. If you've read ahead to chapter 19, you know that things don't go well in Sodom and Gomorrah. This city, renowned for its wickedness, mentioned in chapter 13, and it will continue to reappear through this narrative. We'll take a closer look at Sodom and Gomorrah and all the modern corollaries today with with obvious connections that we'll see in chapter 19. But I don't need to get in trouble yet because we're not there yet. So uh, let's instead talk about what's in front of us. There is something that the author is trying to show us. There's something about Lot's choice that's different than Abram's generosity. You see, remember, Lot here is a negative example of faith. And he chose for himself the younger man who is completely dependent in his success on his uncle's fortune. He has what he has because of Abram. He chooses the better land. This is such a... (laughs) This is such a Lot move. I'm going to call it a lot move. You guys can use that in the dorms if you want. When somebody takes the last banana, it's such a lot move, bro. What's the matter with you? They're my bananas. So he, he, he makes the choice that's selfish. He makes the choice that appeals to his flesh. And the text tries to show us that this is a choice that's going to come back and bite him. 
the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned in verse 10, the impending destruction of Yahweh in verse 10, and then this description of east and as far as and the the east side of the valley. You see, Lot has chosen the land that is the very furthest edge of the land that God promised Abram. It's the part that looks the best, but it's also the part that is the closest to those who do not honor God. In fact, when we see Lot in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he will no longer live outside of the cities in the plain. Lot will have moved his family all the way into Sodom and Gomorrah. He will be a part of that society. There was something about Lot's choice that was selfish. Something about Lot's choice that was scheming, that was relying on his own wisdom, that his own uh, lookout for himself. You see, when you don't believe God's word, when you don't rely on God's word, all you have left is your own ingenuity, your own resources, your own fleshly choices. And Lot is the prime example of someone who makes a faithless choice here. Lot is one who chooses for himself. Instead of like his uncle who believed God's word, and that was the secret to his contentment and his freedom and giving away whatever it was that he knew would eventually be his anyway, seeing it as an offering to the Lord, Lot wasn't living by faith. Lot was living by sight. He was seeing things on a merely human level. The foreshadowing here to know that Abraham knew that his seed and his heir would inherit this land reminds us that when we look all the way forward to Abram's real seed and real heir in the Lord Jesus Christ, his most significant descendant, we see a man who made choices based on faith and not by sight. We see a man who obeyed God completely. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a man who, according to Philippians 2, considered others as more important than himself. How Abraham-like, how Jesus-like, how magnanimous, how kind. But Lot chooses this dark echo, this outskirts, the very edge. It's as if the Hebrew is, language is saying he's, he's out here in the far outskirts in the very edge. He didn't choose the way of the sojourner because a sojourner worships even when his faith falters and a sojourner worships even when he knows he's failed. But a sojourner also can trust the future to a glorious God because he knows his promises will come true. And that's what we see in in Abraham's example. Look how the story concludes Uh, Yet another warning there, verse 13, now the men of Sodom are wicked exceedingly and sinners against Yahweh. Maybe after this moment, if Abram had any doubt whatsoever, and, and from the text it doesn't appear he did at all, it said he had total confidence in God's providence. That's why he had so much freedom, so much magnanimity. But just to reinforce it, and this is so like God, It shows us that a sojourner not only worships even when he falters, and a sojourner can entrust the future to God's providence with freedom, with open-heartedness, but finally, 
Uh, note about Abraham's faith is a sojourner, someone who realizes that they live for heaven and not for here. Uh, they trust God's word completely. They trust God's word completely. And that's how the story ends. Verse 14, Yahweh says to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, and this had to be quite the feeling. All Abram's herdsmen's and servants are looking at him like, you're the boss. You're the big kahuna. You're the head honcho. You've got the silver and gold. Lot has donkeys and camels. I mean, it's BMWs and Mercedes, but still, Abram's got all that, and he's got cash money. How did you let him get away with the evidently best part of the land? The servants had to be thinking that. I mean, they're glad they're not in some bad scheme with the Pharaoh anymore, but they're still wondering, like, how did this go down? And so if Abram lacked any confidence that his faithful endeavor was anything less than God's will, God reinforces his faith with a word of promise. You know, if you question if what you're doing is right, it's always good to look to God. And that's exactly what God tells Abram. Remember the words of Lot in verse 10, that he lifted up his eyes in a greedy way to choose the very best land as a usurper, as a manipulator. He took it. Look at the words of verse 14. Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth then your descendants can also be numbered arise walk about the land through its length and breadth for I will give it to you Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. To there he built an altar to Yahweh. So the sojourner way operates with freedom and magnanimity, but it also keeps hanging on to the word of promise. Abram lifts up his eyes. He doesn't trust the appearance of things. He doesn't Hold on to the outward, external look of things. Instead, he holds on to an invisible word. You see, more than those well-watered lands, more precious to Abram was the promise of God. My friends, if you want to live by faith and not by sight, I would urge you tonight to copy, to emulate the faith of Abraham. And to follow his example of faith is to follow his great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. For you to worship even when you falter. For you to turn to God even when you mess up. Because where else would you go? And for you to live in such a way that's living by faith, that's not worried about tomorrow, that has a wide open and generous heart towards others because you know God will meet all your needs. And then to just keep hanging on to the promise of God. That's the example of Abraham. So you could distrust the appearance of things and hold on to the word of God. Or you can do what's right in your own eyes and hope that your wisdom 
and your leverage and your decisions will make things the best for you. But only one way is to live as a sojourner. Only one way is to understand who you really are. And for Abraham and for the Christians who would be his descendants by faith, Galatians 3.16, they would hold on to the words of Peter. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as sojourners, as travelers, as refugees, as wanderers and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans so they accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you see how we live in light of an unseen promise? How we live in light of a day to come? When we do that, we have faith like our father Abraham.